Good morning, my dear brothers and sisters. What a, a lovely bond is established between David and Jonathan in that chapter from the first book of Samuel, which we have read together this morning. It's unsullied by the wicked thoughts of perverse men and women in our age who suggest other things about David and Jonathan. And we need not spend time thinking about those issues because there is something very beautiful in the friendship which Jonathan immediately finds there with David. Somehow they just click, as we might have said. And it's not simply that David has slain Goliath and uh, rescued the nation when Saul and other men of war, wherever Jonathan was, we're not sure, were afraid and were in hiding. There's much more to it than that, as I'm sure you're aware. It is that Jonathan sees in David a kindred spirit. He sees in David a man who loves God as he himself loves God and who cares about the name of God and the reputation of God, how God is seen and how he is presented. So at the end of, or rather, yes, the end of the incident with Goliath, not the end of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, but when David goes out to fight the giant, we notice that David's concern is very much that God should be glorified by this action. David is not doing this for his own sake, nor even for Israel's sake, though it would certainly benefit the nation. And in 1 Samuel 17 and verse 46, David says, This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So this whole episode, brothers and sisters, was that, so that, in order that, all might know that there was a God in Israel and might know the name of the Lord. And the whole assembly of Israel whose faith in, in the, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was at such a low ebb at this time because of Saul that they too would know the value of the name of God. And it's surely that which so closely binds Jonathan to David here in the beginning of, of 1 Samuel 18. It's that same concern which David later expressed in Psalm 8 perhaps. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And Psalm 8 is, it is suggested by, by some, was a psalm to celebrate the um, victory of Israel over the Philistines on that occasion. Well, I'd like you to come back uh, a few chapters to 1 Samuel 13, just to notice that this was very much Jonathan's attitude also, that these two men were as one in this matter of their desire to exalt and to glorify God. 
1 Samuel 13 takes us way back into the reign of Saul where again the Philistines were uh, pestering Israel and, and were a real nuisance to them and had taken steps to ensure that Israel would be so demoralized as a nation that they would be in no, uh, no case, no way, no circumstance able to revolt against the Philistines. And the end of chapter 13 tells us, verse 19, There was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks and for the axes and to sharpen the goads. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and with Jonathan his son was there found. So Saul and Jonathan were the only two men in the whole of the nation of Israel, brothers and sisters, who had a sword and a spear, it seems. And Jonathan reasoned very properly that if he had those things, then it was incumbent upon him to use him. Where did the responsibility lie, save with those who did have the weaponry? It's like that with the sword of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, isn't it? If we have the equipment, then we have the responsibility to use it. That's what Jonathan was reasoning here. And so when we moved into chapter 14 of 1 Samuel in our readings recently, we saw that that was exactly what Jonathan did. When all others were afraid, as we have said, and Saul particularly was hiding, and the men with him were diminishing in number day after day, they had been whittled down from 3,000 to 600 already. And even they were stealing away from Saul. Jonathan and his armor-bearer went out alone to fight against the Philistines. And you can see the faith of Jonathan measuring very much up to the faith of David um, in his war against Goliath. Verse 6 of 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come! And let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. So Jonathan's faith is manifest in those words, isn't it? Again, an example to us in, in our preaching when we go over to those who are uncircumcised of, of heart and mind in the world. And it doesn't matter whether we're many or few. It doesn't matter what resources we have, whether we think we have talents and abilities for preaching or not, whether we're doing it as an ecclesial effort or as individual witnesses to the name of God. There is no restraint with the Lord, is there, to save by many or by few. Our work can be blessed, whether it's work as individuals or work in the ecclesial or even the brotherhood-wide situation. Jonathan was very faithful in that regard. He knew that the battle was the Lord's, just as David later expressed the matter when facing Goliath. And so in verse 10, it, Jonathan leaves the matter in the hands of God and he asks God for guidance and for a sign. He says to his armor bearer, verse 9, 
if they say unto us, tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and will not go unto them. But if they say thus, come up unto us, then we will go up, for the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. Of course, they discovered themselves to the Philistines, and the, the, the Philistines said, come up and we'll show you a thing or two. And Jonathan knew from that instantly that God was with him. And he allowed God to open up the way and to lead them in this matter. He didn't know whether his course of action was right or wrong. So he left it in the hands of God. And he set this sign. Would have been very easy, wouldn't it, to say, oh, well, I'm not sure now, now that the Philistines have said that, we're a bit vulnerable here, do you think we really should go up there? It would have been very easy, wouldn't it, to change his mind at that point. And indeed, he was very vulnerable. The Philistines were way up higher than Jonathan and his armor-bearer. They didn't have a good vantage point for, for this skirmish, did they? But in full faith, Jonathan and his armor-bearer with him, all credit to that young man, uh, discovered themselves to the Philistines, took it that God was indeed with them, and uh, confident in his strength, they went to fight and, and slew some 20 of, of the Philistines. Later on in this chapter, things take a different turn, as I'm sure you will recall from our daily readings. And uh, in verse 24, we find that Jonathan is in a situation where perhaps in this record, and I shall not be dogmatic about it, but you might like to talk about it later, perhaps Jonathan represents here the Gentiles in this story. He is a man, it seems, who in this incident that follows the initial skirmish and rout of the Philistines is outside the law because he's not present when Saul utters his edict. He hasn't heard what, what Saul, his father, said. So he is outside the law uh, from that point of view. Verse 24 of 1 Samuel 14. The men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had adjured the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening, that I may be avenged of mine enemies. So none of the people tasted any food. And then later we're told that Jonathan was not there to hear what Saul said. So Jonathan was outside the law. And yet, verse 27, he was nonetheless guilty. But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath, wherefore he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes were enlightened. And then he is made aware of the situation. And uh, he actually states his opinion. Although we find in the record that Jonathan was extremely loyal to his father, he does here uh, give vent to his feelings that his father had been foolish in this. How much better if Saul had allowed the people to eat and to be strengthened first rather than urging them on, pressing them on, bullying them when they were so faint and weary that he might be avenged of his enemies. Notice the personal pronouns in that 24th verse. Saul doesn't see them as God's enemies but as his own. 
But what I especially want us to notice there in, in uh, verses 26, 7, 8 is the echoes of Genesis. Perhaps you, you noticed these uh, as you read them the other day. Jonathan put forth his hand. Doesn't that remind you of Genesis chapter 3? Well, actually, Jonathan put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand. But there's a little whisper there, isn't there, of Genesis 3. She put forth her hand and took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, Jonathan here is eating what has been forbidden to him, not by God, but by Saul in this instance. And the result is similar, isn't it? His eyes were enlightened, just as Adam and Eve's eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. Here, Jonathan's eyes were enlightened. Not the same Hebrew word, but certainly the same idea. And his eyes were enlightened. And the result of that, when you come down the chapter a little further to verses 39 and 40, is that Saul seems to be playing God here. And uh, because he's made the law, he decides that Jonathan shall die. And uh, again, it's very much uh, a Genesis phrase. Verse 39, For as the Lord liveth, which saveth Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. Notice that Genesis phrase uh, again there, very clearly, isn't it? He shall surely die. Verse 44, And Saul answered, God do so, and more also, for thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. So Saul playing at God. And the echoes of Genesis there are intriguing, aren't they? Not sure exactly what, uh, the, what uh, their entire significance is here. Um, but clearly uh, there is some allusion there to the, uh, the incident with Adam and Eve. Jonathan doesn't die. Jonathan is ransomed by the people. And here again is a little cameo of, of our salvation being played out in, in this instance. We can see some connections with Genesis 3 at least. And uh, verse 45. The people said unto Saul, Shall Jonathan die who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid. As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, that he died not. They recognized the truth of the matter, that Jonathan had wrought with God in the matter of saving Israel, in this matter of salvation. So here Jonathan perhaps is, is an allusion to the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, working with God for the salvation of the people. And so the people rescued Jonathan. The Hebrew is they ransomed him. The record doesn't tell us how they did that, whether they did it by means of a sacrifice, a burnt offering or something, or whether they did it with some monetary value and rescued or redeemed Jonathan by a silver payment. We can't be sure. But however it came about, the people here redeemed Jonathan, ransomed him in that way. So we can see, can't we, very much how Jonathan and David had in common this concern for the name of God, for the things of God, and for the kingdom of God. 
and uh, later in our readings in 1 Samuel this week God willing we shall uh, come across the uh, fact that Jonathan unperturbed by the words of Samuel to his father that the kingdom would depart from Saul's house think of the effects of that on Jonathan Jonathan is not perturbed by that he knows that David is to be the next king and he asks only that David show him and his house kindness and he desires to be next unto David next unto the king his concern is for the well-being of the kingdom not his own status not his own future not his own glory Jonathan and David are one in this matter brothers and sisters their concern for God the things of the kingdom of God and the name of God so there is as we said established this beautiful relationship between them and this lovely bond Jonathan takes off his garments probably his royal garments and his sword and his bow and his girdle there in those early verses of the chapter that we have read he presents them to David as an offering to the one who is as he recognizes the Lord's anointed the one whom God was seeking a man after his own heart as after God's heart a man who thought as God thought a man whose, whose very intentions were according to that which God desired. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. How different then is Saul? And isn't that the point of these chapters, brothers and sisters, just to draw the contrast particularly between Jonathan's relationship with David and that of Saul his father here again in chapter 18 that we've read we notice the first occasion where Saul tries to pin David to the wall David escaped out of his presence from the javelin twice it says here in chapter 18 Saul's envy had got the better of him he was afraid of David and thus very jealous of him just look at verses 8 and 9 of the chapter that we've read Saul was very rough the saying the saying of the people concerning the victory over Goliath displeased him and he said they have ascribed unto David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed but thousands and what can you have more but the kingdom Saul was very annoyed wasn't he now and jealous that the people fated David acclaimed his victory by their street parties and their dancing and jubilation and said things about David which Saul found inconvenient and unhappy it belittled him he felt and rightly so because he had done no more than hide he'd not been a leader of the nation had he He'd not led them out to battle in this case. And by the time we come to verse 15, you can see that, that Saul is very much afraid because of David's relationship with God. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. 
And that's what's getting at Saul, isn't it? That's what's eating away at him and, and, and making him so jealous. It's the fact that David has this relationship with God that Saul does not. And in verse 29 of the chapter, Saul was yet the more afraid of David. And Saul became David's enemy continually. So now Saul adds to his willful disobedience of the word of God, which was inexcusable, something that I think is, well, not more excusable, but I think at least we may feel just a little bit sorry for Saul in this, that he was not able to bring himself to talk to David to try and establish a relationship with David and through David to try and find his way back to God. That's the very tragic thing about Saul, it seems to me, in this and the ensuing chapters. Here, because he saw David's closeness with God, here surely was an opportunity for him to come back to God, to find his way back. How do you do it, David? What is the secret of, of your relationship with the Almighty? How can I be, become more closely related to God? I know that I have offended and I know that I have sinned. And Saul did know those things. And he knew also that he was more concerned about status and, and, and looks, the externals of life. But if only he could have used David as his opportunity to be instructed in, in the privacy of the palace when David came to him. No one else need have known, need they? If only he could have humbled himself sufficiently to say to David, teach me how it's done. Help me to find my way back to God. And of course, Saul, regrettably, did no such thing. This man who was himself head and shoulders above the people and who looked so good outwardly, was always concerned only about looks. The record, someone was pointing out to us just the other day, it doesn't actually say that, that Saul was head and shoulders. It says that from his shoulders and upward, he was above the people. In other words, it's drawing attention perhaps to his head and drawing attention to the fact that he should have been the head of this nation. And uh, really was not, was he? He was not fit to be their head. He was concerned with looks in terms of sacrifice rather than obedience, as we saw in chapter 15. When Samuel had to tell him that to hearken is better than the fat of rams. Sacrifice is no substitute for obedience, brothers and sisters, is it? But Saul regarded it as such. Again, the externals, the appearance only. It meant nothing to him. It was an empty shell, a ritual as it became later for the whole nation of Israel. Saul was not a man who could bring himself to obey God in all its simplicity. And instead, what we find here in the last verses of 1 Samuel 18 is that he set himself against David. He became his enemy continually. He set himself to beat David. At all costs, Saul was going to win. But of course, he was not, was he? That was his desire. That was his intention. 
he would now move heaven and earth to try and, and beat David rather than humble himself to ask David for help in finding the Lord. So he, he turns to fighting the one who has been anointed by Samuel, the one who is the Lord's anointed. And in so doing, he is, of course, fighting against God, trying to destroy the one whom God has chosen. Well, brothers and sisters, we have come again around the emblems of the bread and wine this morning. And it is the responsibility of each of us as individuals to examine our faith. Where do we stand in relation to these three characters who come across the pages of 1 Samuel 18? How do we measure up in terms of David? Jonathan. Their faith. Their utter confidence in the God whom they serve. Their desire for his glory. Or how do we measure up against Saul? Have we failed this week as he failed so abysmally? By putting emphasis too much on the externals of this life? The, the material trappings of the world? Have we been too inclined towards those in our thinking and our actions during the past week? And how do we measure up then to this beautiful and glorious Son of God? This one who was the well-beloved, altogether beautiful in his holiness, lovely in his, his sinlessness and his purity, gorgeous, isn't he, in his, his holy approach and his separation from everything that sullies our natures and our lives. David and Jonathan have much to teach us, brothers and sisters, about the unity that should exist between brethren. And here especially, we remember that unity. The bread speaks to us as being members of the one body, interdependent and interrelated. We cannot act alone without that which we do impacting upon one another. So there are lessons there, aren't there? And in our readings from Isaiah recently, we've, we've noticed how Isaiah condemned Israel. Their sacrifices, he said, were a waste of time. It's almost as though... God had come into their sacrifices and said, I don't know why you bother. And, and they couldn't understand that. But, but you've commanded us to make these sacrifices. And so indeed he had, but not the sacrifices alone. What use were they if they were but an empty shell, a ritual, if their hearts were not in them? The people must have been aghast at the words of Isaiah. Just as brethren and sisters, we would be aghast, wouldn't we? If ever, God forbid it should be, but if ever the Lord Jesus Christ were to say to us, I don't know why you bothered breaking bread. 
But, but you, you commanded us to break bread. We, we, do, we did it because you said, do this in remembrance of me. But it's no use, is it, if, if we have not discerned the meaning behind it. If it's just a ritual, an empty shell. If it doesn't teach us to love one another as he loved us. To be willing to give ourselves in, in service and sacrifice to one another as he gave himself. If we do not practice the unity of, of the body of which these emblems speak as members one of another and members of the body of Christ. That's what this breaking of bread is about, brothers and sisters, and this drinking of wine. And as we examine ourselves carefully, we need to beware of those, those things that, that are to do with show those things that are to do with self-seeking with which Saul was so concerned and we need to lay those aside and concentrate our minds now upon that which glorified God in his son which made him the well-beloved and so pleased the almighty you see, brothers and sisters, the great difference between Saul and Jonathan was simply this. It was their relationship with David. Their relationship with the Lord's anointed. And that's exactly what it boils down to for us here this morning. Everything in our partaking of this bread and this wine depends for us, each of us, on our relationship with the Lord's anointed, with that glorious Son of God.